Bill Cody, and I am the campus minister for our denomination at Austin Peay State University. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you could turn to page 1013, if you have one of these Bibles, or to James chapter 5, it'll also be on the screen up here. Uh, whenever I get the opportunity to preach here, we have been preaching through the, this letter that one of the early church leaders named James, he's the half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote this letter to this community, this very early Christian community, uh, mid-first century AD. And every time I get up here, we get the pleasure of hearing from James. And this is the last, very end of James. This is the last section of the last chapter of this epistle. Let's read. Let's hear God speak to us. James chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. James writes to his audience and to us, is anyone among you uh, suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that God would help us. Father, as we um, open our hearts now to hear, as we've just done, as we've heard your, you speak to us in your word and in this sermon, we pray that you would give us soft hearts, that we would be comforted encouraged and go out to this week to um, trust you with our suffering, with our cheerfulness, with our death, and with um, um, people in our lives that don't know you yet. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last summer, I was, uh, my family and I were hanging out at the local city pool, the uh, Swan Lake pool. Uh, this is near my neighborhood. And it was my favorite time um, of the hour. It was Adult Swim. So you probably know, but if you don't know, Adult Swim is when all the kids have to get out of the pool and the adults can just kind of float around and lounge around. Um, and the adults, you know, the lifeguards take off for 10 minutes and we get to relax. So I do a lap or two and I do some handstands in the pool and I ended up hanging out um, on the wall of the pool with my friend, with my, my friend, my friend and son, John. And um, I decided I was going to try to impress my son, my eight-year-old son, with how long I could hold my breath underwater. Uh, what adult doesn't love showing off feats of strength to children, right? <laughs> so I feel better about myself. So he, uh, he gets set up with the clock, and I take this deep breath, and I go underwater, and I'm holding my breath, and I'm feeling really good. I've got, like, really good breath of air in my lungs. And my lungs feel great, and I'm thinking maybe I'll even beat my personal record this time as I'm holding my breath there under the water. So I'm under the water, about 20 seconds, about 20 seconds later, uh, I hear some commotion. I feel like I can hear some commotion on top of the water somewhere. 
but in, I don't want to mess up this, this uh, new PR that I'm setting. So I stay down there, hoping that this is something, this will go away. And the next thing I know, someone has jumped into the water and grabbed hold of me and yanked me out <laughs> of the water. And I'm like, what is going on? What are you doing? Who is this? And I, sure enough, I look and it's the lifeguard. And I was like, oh, sorry, man. I just realized what's happening. He thought I was drowning. And um, I tell him, I'm sorry. And he sees that I'm not drowning. There's a very relieved look on his face, but he's like, dude, there's no extended breath holding. And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, no extended breath holding. And I have never heard this phrase in my life. So I'm like, what are you talking? He must have seen the confused look on my face. And he's like, no extended breath holding. And he points to the sign um, where all the rules are. And sure enough, the bottom of the list of rules, it says, no extended breath holding. I've never heard this before. <laughs> so if you ever go to Clarksville City Pool, remember, say it with me, no extended breath holding. Okay. <laughs> now, a lot of things were going on. I was kind of annoyed at this rule. I felt bad for this guy who thought I was drowning, who jumped in to save me. I felt very embarrassed because everybody was looking at me. And this one Korean woman especially was laughing at me and would not stop laughing at me. <laughs> but it was good to know that at the end of the day um, that these lifeguards at the Swan Lake Pool, even to an unreasonable degree, they care about me. <laughs> um, my, uh, that's my plug for Swan Lake Swim, uh, Pool. Um, but at the end of the day, I didn't really think about them. I didn't know they were there. But at the end of the day, they cared about me a lot. In our text, in this last section of the letter, of this letter from James, he wants his readers to know and to be left with and to take with them into their lives that Jesus cares for them, even if they've forgotten that he's there, even if they don't realize that he's there, that Jesus loves you and Jesus is the source of your life, even if you've forgotten it. Um, the big idea in this text is that God gives life and he is the source of anything that is good he is the source of anything that is life-giving, life-bringing, whether that's something that's spiritual, whether that's something that's physical, whatever realm you can imagine, he is the source of life and goodness in it. And even if we forget, he still is there for us. Uh, but here's the big idea of our text. The big idea of this text is that God is the source of life and he loves us. And if God is the source of life and he loves us, then James gives us three responses that you should do. The three responses are my three, are three points tonight, today, this morning. James wants us to bring your life to Jesus. That's our first point. Second point, bring your death to Jesus. And our third point, to bring the lost to Jesus. So because God is the source of life, because he loves us, we should bring our lives to Jesus, we should bring our deaths to Jesus, and we should bring the lost to Jesus. So our first response to God being the source of life, we should bring our life to Jesus. Look with me in verse 13. James divides the text and these three points for us, by very helpful for people that are trying to get a sermon outline, by this phrase. Um, he says, anyone among you, three times. And the first time that he says anyone among you is first, verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So James is covering basically the full gamut the full spectrum of the human experience, of all of life. On the one side, anyone who is suffering, and this could be any kind of suffering. And on the other side, anyone who is cheerful. Now the word for cheerful here means like a good heart. It means um, you may be free from trouble or um, distress, you may not be, 
But even in the midst of it, you have a good heart. You have a, a happy, content heart. Whether it's the situation is good or the situation is not so good. You're happy in whatever circumstances may be. And he tells the one on this side, the one that is suffering, he says, he tells them to pray. Okay? Very simple. I need to hear this very regularly. But when we are suffering, James tells us to pray. He wants you to, James wants us to bring our suffering and talk to God about it, to explain it to God. Tell him what my experience is right now. Tell him what is going on with me right now. Tell him how I'm scared or how I'm in distress, how I'm anxious. Tell him how I feel. Trauma dump on God. Draw near to God in your suffering. Is there any place in your life where you are in this trial of praying in the midst of suffering? Or maybe this is, maybe I mean, for me, maybe this is for all of us in some sense, but this is not my go-to, and this is not my default when it comes to suffering. Um, did you ever wonder why, if this is not your default, to go to him in prayer as soon as you realize that you're suffering? Why might this be? Have you ever thought about that? What might it be that is your challenge to praying to him in your suffering? Maybe it's that you don't, just don't think that he hears you. Or maybe you don't think naturally that he even cares about you. Or maybe the suffering is your fault somehow and you're ashamed to bring it to God. That could be another thing that's keeping us from coming to him with our suffering. Or maybe you feel like, what's the point? Nothing's gonna change. Why should I even pray? Or maybe you just don't even think about it. Maybe you were raised in an environment where you, know, you just can't imagine anyone meeting you in the midst of your suffering like God does. Um, one of the common thoughts that I have, probably one of my defaults, is why are you letting this happen to me, God? But the question mark on the end of that is not really a question mark. It's actually an accusation, more of an accusation. It's more of a, you're letting this happen. I'm in pain. You're not doing anything. In fact, I think you might be actually contributing to this somehow, God, when I ask that question. Um, and it's not a drawing near. It um, stems from this assumption that I'm on my own, that God's doing nothing, maybe even harming me. Maybe some, one of these resonates you, with you as one of your default reasons that you do not naturally bring your suffering to God. Um, but James's audience, apparently they have issues with this too. They have challenges with bringing their sufferings to God too because James reminds them, hey, if you are suffering, bring your suffering to Jesus. He cares for you. Whatever, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, in the very last sections, he's drawing this to a close. He's telling them, bring your pain to God, bring your confusion to God, bring your whatever, bring it to him when you suffer. That is what he wants us to do. If anyone among you is suffering, pray, James says. And if we struggle in this trial of suffering, what about the trial of being good in heart, of being cheerful and content? James wants us to come to him when we are happy with our circumstances. And he wants us to sing praises, he says. Now, when he says sing praises, it literally says sing psalms. Uh, literally, you know, sing the Psalter. Those 150 um, songs that are in the middle of your Bible, sing those. Um, give thanks and praise and acknowledge him when you have a content heart. Draw close to him in response to the great gift that it is. Just think about how great that, how many people are not content? How, much, how great a gift it is when we are content and happy and cheerful. It's a great gift from the Father of lights when you are content 
and cheerful. Is there anything in your life that you have not, uh, any place in your life you have not taken to God and give him thanks and praise for? Um, your cheerfulness, so your suffering, we see that as a trial, right? But your cheerfulness is also a trial. It's a trial, it's a place where, and remember, trials are meant to make us more like Jesus. It's to make to soften our hearts, to make us more mature. The trial of cheerfulness is a trial where we are to bring our contentment, our good hearts to God and thanks and praise that he has given us this great gift. Uh, one of my friends at the end of college, he went on this dream backpacking trip to Europe and he got to see all the highlights. He got saw the Sistine Chapel, he saw the Colosseum, he went to the Louvre, he did all that stuff. And I don't remember how this came to be, but he ended up doing this trip all by himself. I don't remember if he planned it that way or if somebody bailed on him at the last minute. But when he got back, he was reflecting on this adventure that he had had, this several week adventure in Europe. And he said that up until that point in his life, it was the greatest time of his life. It was the greatest time of his life, but he said it was also the worst time of his life. <laughs> it was great, but it was the best time of his life because he got to do all this fun stuff and see all these amazing old things. But it was the worst time of his life because he had absolutely no one to share this with. He's experiencing all of these things by himself, and it all felt so awesome, somehow so awesome, but also so empty at the same time. It was the best and the worst time of his life. Well, our suffering and our being happy in heart are not meant to be experienced alone. The experience of our suffering is not complete, in a sense, until we bring it to God, until we bring it to Jesus. In the same way, our cheerfulness is empty, in a sense. It's, our contentment is, is not complete until we, give, we have given God the praise and the thanks for it and shared it with how much uh, and share that with God. Um, he is the one who gives life to us when we're suffering, and he is the one who is the source of life and goodness whenever we enjoy it. Is anyone among you cheerful? Sing praise. If anyone among us is cheerful, let's sing praise to God. Let's praise him and thank him. So that's our first point. Bring our life. Wherever you are in the spectrum of life, bring that to God. He wants us. He wants you. He wants you to do this. So James covers how we should respond when we suffer, when we're cheerful, we bring our life to him. That's our first point. Our second point is that um, because God is the source of life, he wants us to bring our death to him. So look with me in verse 14. This is where it all gets really weird. Uh, verse 14, he says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So James is kind of naming this uh, situation. Something's happened. So the situation that James is describing is that you are sick, okay? Imagine you are sick, and you're so sick that you can't get out of bed. Um, the words translated as sick here two times are, are weak and worn out. You're weak and worn out from some illness. You can't get out of bed, so you have to call someone to come to you, and you call these elders to come. We'll talk about that in a second. But they come to you, and they pray over you, so they're like, over you and you're laying down. That's the image that James is giving as someone that's bedridden and cannot get out of bed because they're sick and, and weak. Now, being in this position, right, in the, first, in the 21st century, that's pretty scary to be that sick that you, you've in bed for so long, you have to call somebody. It's re but really scary in the first century, right? This is like before bloodletting and all that stuff. Who knows what they were doing back then? 
But James says that if you're like in this position, if you're in the, the most of us here are all going to experience at some point. Uh, many of us are young and full of life now, right? But it's not always gonna be that way. And if this is you, then just tuck this away for later. James tells you to call the elders of the church if you ever get to this point. Now the elders, the presbyterus, the presbyteros, the, the, that's where we get Presbyterian from, it's from elders. The elders, they come to the, um, the elders of the, so the elders are the church leaders that the church has chosen to represent them. They represent the church. And just like today in our church, we do this. And also just like today, uh, I know the elders of this church have been called to, to these situations before. If you have any questions or wanna know what it's like, you can ask them about it. Um, so the elders respond to this invitation. They come to this, this uh, weak person that's bedridden and they bring olive oil. And they, as the representatives of the church, um, they pray over this sick person, pray for and over this sick person. Now the sick person is not praying. It, like, they're, they're just passive here, which is kind of interesting. But they, they would pray over you and they would anoint you with oil. Now a couple of things about this. First of all, notice that James is not talking about a healing service or something that I might have seen on, I've seen on TV before. This isn't like a healing service. He's not forbidding that or commanding that. He's just not talking about it. This is something different. And notice that there is no one with the role or the office or the job of healer here in this section either. This is the church that is praying for you when you're sick. And third, there is nothing like magical about this olive oil. We'll see, um, it's the prayer to Jesus that is the effectual thing here. It's the prayer that is the effectual means here. The oil, what the point of the oil is, if you're ever wondering, the point of the oil is it's to let you the, know that you are being set apart physically, tangibly, you get this physical, tangible sign that you are being set apart for healing because you are so desperately sick and on the verge of death. I remember when I was ordained um, up here, like right there maybe, uh, about two years ago, I wasn't anointed with oil, but elders of the presbytery in a different biblically prescribed kind of ceremony, they physically placed their hands on me and they prayed for me. And maybe you've experienced something akin to this, but it's besides being very uncomfortable, um, having all the attention on me, the whole, the whole way that God had set it up, the whole physicality of it, the physicalness of it, aroused this seriousness that, that this was all actually very important and real and way bigger than just me, way bigger than me, way different, way bigger than me. Um, one commentator put it this way when he was describing, like, what's the point of the oil here? He says, by this anointing, the church leaders set up, I think I have a quote from this guy, Dan Doriani. He says, by this anointing, the church's leaders set apart the sick person for special attention, even healing from God. The ceremony is meant to arouse faith. So James goes on and he wants to talk about the effect. What is the effect of the elders coming, anointing someone with oil, praying over this person that's on the verge of death? Um, he says in verse 15 that in this act, the prayer of faith of the church will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, what's interesting here, this is the hardest thing about this text, is that what James is doing is really weird and interesting, and I like it, but it's also hard, is that he's mixing, these, he's got these two phrases, saved and will raise him up. And James is, what it seems like he's doing is he's taking these words that could be applied, first of all, to this immediate 
um, current weakness or illness is happening, that will be saved from it, they will be raised up out of the bed from it. But he's, these words have the significance all over the rest of the Bible. You know, saved can also mean, you know, your soul is saved, you're saved from the punishment for your sin. If you're raised up, that's a common phrase in the Bible for being raised up at the resurrection, the last day. For example, Jesus says in uh, John chapter six, he says, uh, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's James's half brother there, Jesus talking. And he says, he's talking about being raised up at the last day. So what James is doing here is he's taking this like provisional temporary salvation from this illness because it's all provisional and temporary, right? Because we're all gonna die unless Jesus returns. And he's linking it, this temporary thing with this eternal salvation from sin and resurrection when Jesus returns on the last day. So it seems like what's happening is this prayer of faith by the elders, and remember, you're not praying as the elders, as the church praying, leads you, you're experiencing this, and God responding to it as well, leads you and the church community into experiencing in a new way when you are on the precipice of death, which we all will experience, and you're possibly filled with all these doubts and all these fears that the coming of your death is... It sounds like the most, it could be the most horrible experience ever, right? But by this act, the church by Jesus helps you to realize in a profound way when you need it the most that your forgiveness is sure, that you are saved and that the Lord will raise you up. Maybe here, maybe here with, from this illness, but for sure at the last day, you will be raised up and saved. But the whole point of this is that we can entrust our death to God, who forgives all of our sins and will raise us up forever in the resurrection. Um, do you remember what Jesus told Martha in John chapter 11 when he's talking to uh, Martha about when Lazarus had died, her brother? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. God, Jesus wants, James, Jesus, they want us to entrust ourselves to God with our death, with our deaths. Because he's the source of life, we can bring our death to Jesus. And because we know that we can rest from the guilt of our sins, we know that we are going to be raised up again. James links this in the next verses, really interesting. He links this to our being able in, the, in our church and relationships to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. He says in verse 16, um, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So because God responds to our prayers, we should seek reconciliation and pray for each other and pray for each other, especially when we're sick. It's just, it's just a reminder we need to hear all the time. Pray for other people when you hear that they are sick. Your friends, your family members, especially people here in this fellowship, pray for each other when we are sick. Prayer has great power while it is working. And he gives this example of, this really weird example of Isaiah. Uh, he says in verse uh, 16b to 17, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, I used to think righteous person 
uh, was like meant some kind of holy <coughs> great pastor or something. I actually went to a pastor one time when I was in great distress. Pray for me. I know you're a righteous person. Um, but James goes out of his way here to describe Elijah as just a man with a nature just like ours. There wasn't anything special about Elijah in one sense. When it came to his being able to commune with God and God hearing his prayers, there's nothing special about Elijah. Me and Elijah are on the same plane here. Um, but this righteous guy, Elijah, he trusted in Jesus, and he was righteous to that guy because he trusted in Jesus. So we have this, this is pointing to this story that's in 1 Kings 17 and 18. It's a great story. It's uh, the, the story, um, there's this drought that's mentioned in this text, and God uses this drought that Elijah is a part of in order to bring this huge uh, confrontation on Mark, Mount Carmel, and all these, pre, like 400 pieces of Baal, they all get slaughtered. <laughs> and uh, it's a great story, read it yourself. But these priests, these priests of Baal, they were ensnaring the hearts of Israel and leading them to idolatry, leading them to evil, leading them to death. But God used Isaiah and he used his prayers and he used his drought in order to save the people of Israel from their sins and even from death. And then Elijah prayed again after all this was over and the, and the heavens gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now, I feel like there's something missing that I'm not missing, that I'm, I'm missing here, but at least saying this. The text is saying that anything that is corrupting, anything that is death-causing in a general sense, whether it's in an individual, whether it's in a family, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a denomination, James is saying he wants us to bring these things, bring these forms of death to God. He is the only one that can defeat death. He's the only one that defeats your physical death and also the death and decay that is a result of sin. Is anyone among you sick? Call the elders of the church. Is anyone in your life sick? Pray for them. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And you are, if you trust in Jesus, you are that righteous person. So that's our second point, bring our death to him. Finally, our third point is we are to bring the lost to him. Um, we've, James has mentioned our life and our death. Now we're, he wants us to bring the lost in. There's the last two verses in the whole book of James. Look at the screen or in your Bibles. He writes, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James has someone in mind in the community. Someone wanders away from the truth. And they may, may have wandered away uh, theologically with their theological convictions, or maybe they don't have any theological convictions, or maybe morally they've, they've wandered away. But what is your, re and he's saying that it's up to us to go and find them and bring them back. Now, what is your reaction? What is your default, what's my default reaction? What's your default reaction when um, someone wanders from the truth? when someone wanders away from Jesus. It's easy for me, it's very easy for me to look down on them <coughs> or be frustrated with them or to just, if I'm close to that person, uh, to feel very ashamed, um, maybe feel ashamed about them, myself, or maybe to somehow want to just exclude them or ignore them. But James wants us definitely, in light of everything else in this text right here, to pray for them, pray for them. The, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful, while it is working, pray for those people that we love. But uh, can I suggest something that here that was triggered by something that Pastor Richard said several months ago? Because um, it's easy to see this phrase, wander from the truth, 
somebody who's wandering from the truth and think, oh, I just need to like cram some truth into their ears. <laughs> or I need to make them read this book. Or I need to let them see my Facebook posts come up on their Facebook wall. Uh, but Pastor Richard said something that was really helpful. It was from um, uh, Francis Schaeffer. He said, in a post-truth world, which is what the uh, Western culture is like here in the 21st century, in a post-truth world, love is the final apologetic. To put it another way, in a, tr- in a post-truth world, love is the final argument. Love is the greatest argument in a post-truth world. Um, I'm, of course, absolutely not talking about compromising on truth, right? The truth of the gospel. But do those who have wandered from the truth in your life, can they say that you, that you love them? Can they say you still love them? Um, not should they say that in your, from your point of view. Not they better say that from our point of view. But would they say that you still love them, that you love them, even though they've wandered away from the truth? Um, do you know what you do when we do that, when we love people like that? We are bringing them back to Jesus. We are bringing Jesus to them with our love. This is a love of Jesus that we are sharing with them. They're encountering Jesus in our love. Um, Jesus is loving them through you, through you, and this is Jesus, this is bringing Jesus to the lost. This is bringing the lost to Jesus. And then you can just let Jesus have his way with them. Maybe you are gonna talk about truth at some point, maybe not. You just love them and let Jesus have his way with them. So let's finish with this. This quick illustration in verses 19 through 20, James gives here. This is, if you don't notice, it's kind of like really vague, like who's, who's who and who's anyone. Um, this is talking, at the end of the day, this is a story about you. This is a story about how you were wandering and lost and Jesus came and sought you and found you out and he brought you back to God. He saved your soul from death. He covered a multitude of your sins. He covered all of your sins. He wants you to bring your suffering to him. He wants you to bring your good heart to him. He wants you to bring your death to him. He wants you to bring your lost friends and family that you love to him. Jesus wants everything. He wants you. Let's pray. Father, this week when we are suffering and when we are um, of good heart, just we need your help. Just bring us to you because sometimes we can't even do it ourselves. Would you just uh, remind us or bring us to you that we can share these things with you? And um, those of us here that are going to die, we pray that you would help us in that moment to remember that you have got us and in, in, you will raise us up on the last day. And we pray that you, um, if we have people in our minds that we are really burdened for, that we love, that are lost and wandering, uh, we lift them up to you now, even these specific people that um, we bring up to our minds. Father, we help, help us this week to just trust you with all the things that we talked about today from James. And we thank you for this book and this, this, uh, this letter, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.